Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the CX Cast. Sam Stern joined, as always, by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we're excited to have in studio with us Vice President, Research Director, David Trogue. Hi, David. Hi, Sam. Hi, Jenny. We want to talk to you in your guise as a event facilitator. You are running, championing our customer experience San Francisco event, which That's is right. coming up next month. The title for this is The Total Experience, Step Up to the High Stakes Future of Experience Design. So, David, what can listeners expect if they're event attendees at the San Francisco event? Well, think about the way we define customer experience as being customers' perceptions of their interactions with a brand. We talk a lot about the word brand. We talk a lot about the word interactions. But what about that word perceptions? What we observe is that a lot of companies don't understand that very well. How do customers actually form their perceptions that give rise to the experience? I'll give you an example. Uh, Most of us are familiar with the peak end rule, the idea that your memory of an experience is the average of the end and the most intense point, whether that's positive or negative. But how many companies are actually applying that in the design of their experiences? Not that many, which is odd if you think about it, because that finding is 25 years old. It was confirmed by many experiments. And yet it's become kind of one of those, huh, that's intriguing, as opposed to this is something we can actually apply in our daily work as experienced designers. Let's use (laughs) this to create better customer experiences. Yes. And it's an excuse for shrinking down what you focus on in the experience. It seems like it'd be this great, exactly, you know, a great optimization. Alluring yeah, to companies moments. like, oh, just, you know, the end and the peak. Well, okay, this is easier than we thought, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. that's, a, that's but, a good point. So that's just one example, but there are a lot of findings from psychology and brain science and cognitive science that, uh, that people could take advantage of to create better experiences. I thought that's interesting. So some of those tricks seem like they would make it easier. It also means that you really have to get into the mind of who this customer is or who this person is that you're interacting with, which I believe is one of the topics that will be discussed on the main stage or throughout the conference. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Throughout the whole event. And and I don't want to call them tricks, really, because that makes it maybe sound like we're trying to trick the customer, but they're more like best practices based on understanding what makes humans tick. I mean, if you want to serve customers who are humans, it's best to understand them, not just in the sense of the way we traditionally describe it as, you know, doing design research, doing customer research, which is crucial, but also understanding some fundamentals about how perceptions work, how emotions form, where memories come from. Why do customers feel happy or not happy about an experience? And you can't just, you know, make assumptions that are naive based on a very shallow understanding of the way perception and cognition work. Talk to us a little bit about some of the content at the forum. Okay, well, I'll tell you uh, a little bit maybe first about the uh, five uh, Forrester analysts who will be keynoting and then also some of the great external industry speakers we have. Part one is going to be about human-centric innovation. And actually, Jenny, who's right here, will be speaking about it. So maybe she'd like <laughs> to say some words yeah. about it in a few minutes. I'll, I'll just walk you through the others quickly, sure. though. So Human-centric innovation, you know, based on that idea that your innovations need to be rooted in an understanding of what makes people tick so that they actually serve someone and don't mm-hmm. um, die on the vine because mm. they simply are a shiny object that it didn't occur to you to make sure would actually serve some human need. Part two, Kelly Price is going to delve into what does make humans tick. So looking at things that go beyond the traditional focus on like, oh, well, you need to understand context and people understand that is like a mobile phone, where it is and what time it is and really basic things. And Kelly's going to look at the idea of deep context. What are some of the other things you need to understand have to do with culture and background, more complex and nuanced determinants of the experience? In part three, Gina Walker is going to talk about how to understand the many variations 
in your customer base to serve all of them as opposed to just a few. There's so many variations in terms of not just abilities, but of course, you know, gender, age, language, cultural background, et cetera, that make different people experience what you design differently. And so you want to factor that into how you design those experiences. It's not just a matter of doing the right thing. It actually helps you make more money, which we find most of our clients care about. Doing the right thing is also motivating to many of us. But if if that's not a motivator, you know, uh, profit is also a reason to do this. In part four, Andrew Hogan is going to be talking about nudges and dark patterns. Most of us Mm -hmm. have heard of both of those and think of them as different things. We see them as a continuum. They're both about influencing customers. But when we say nudge, we usually mean sort of a well-intentioned influencing customers for the better to help them lead better lives. Dark patterns uh, typically means manipulating customers in a way that is in the interest of the company but not of the customer. But who makes that judgment? Well, it's complicated. Andrew's not going to pontificate about the right and wrong there. Well, maybe just a little bit, but not a lot. (laughs) Uh, His main focus is actually going to be on if you are in a company and you are faced uh, with a situation where somebody is asking you to do something that you believe is a dark pattern, what do you do? How do you address that? How do you push back and not just push back, but constructively steer your company in the right direction? Part five, which is the last of these five, I apologize for the long monologue here, but TJ Kitt is going to be talking about making customers successful after the purchase because so many companies really prioritize those pre-purchase phases of marketing and sales, which are essential, of course. But once the customer has made the purchase, how do you make them successful then? TJ has done a lot of research about this in a B2B context, especially for SaaS companies. A lot of those same principles apply to all products, whether B2C or B2B. So that's kind of the overall program. The one additional bit that I want to mention is I'm very excited that we have uh, John Maeda speaking. John is you know, a really great tech and design visionary and author, and he has some very thought-provoking ideas that he's going to be sharing with us. Sounds great. So I want to come back to sections two and three for a second, because mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting to me that um, you know Kelly lays out the fundamental understanding of what makes humans tick, mm-hmm. and then Gina complicates it by saying, well, that makes some humans tick this way and others tick that way, right? You know, I always think yeah. of the universal thing that red as a color is bad or is, you know, danger, except not in a very large part of the world, aka China, where it has a different right. meaning. The number eight is lucky there. Like number seven is lucky here. How do you think about that? You know, and I'm, I'm picturing like, imagine you're on the West Coast and someone comes in and you're thinking, okay, they might be from this country or they might be from another country where it has a completely different meaning. How do you help employees, how do you help companies think through that where in the moment we have to make a prediction, frankly, about what this person is going to be motivated by or care about the most, given our deep knowledge of what makes people tick, but also all the differences there. And now we have to read and react and apply it and hope we get it right for that individual in front of us. That's yeah. interesting also, Sam, that you just took it to the employee experience. Of course I did, right? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. when you think about this, it can be applied also just how designers can learn this about their customers to create experiences and different journeys or different design elements and different markets. But that is true, too, that there is also a human who is a part yeah. of this overall experience who is also going to have to be armed with this knowledge to act correctly. 
Exactly. And of course, the designers are human too. But you're Mm -hmm. right that in making what they design real and enabling it to become real, there are technologies and there are employees involved. And I'm not saying it isn't hard. For sure it is. But there are some things that are going to allow you to just create a much better experience. You know, for example, you know, I lived for a long time in France. And if you go to a restaurant in France versus a restaurant in the U.S., there are very different expectations that would change the employee experience and the way you design it. So, uh, in the U.S., I think most of us have found that the wait staff come and take away your plate as soon as you're done. And if they don't, it's considered kind of bad service. Like, what, are they being lazy, you know? Yeah. In France, it's the contrary. If we're, if the three of us are at a table having dinner and I finish and a waiter takes away my plate, that is interpreted as the wait staff pressuring the other right. the two of you to finish and get out of the restaurant so they can get another customer and make more money, considered very rude. So w- which is right, which is wrong? Neither, of course. It's a perfect situation to the context and the differences um, that in that case are cultural. Yeah. Yeah. So Jenny, let's hear more about your section, the human-driven innovation, customer-driven innovation. Yeah, happy to talk about that. So this was born out of a lot of the questions and approaches that we're seeing to innovation today, which can sometimes miss that human element or aren't born out of that human factor. And when I say that, I mean, these are questions from companies who know that they need to innovate. We've made the case for that digital disruption, right? Keep up to competitors. But they start by saying, okay, well, we know that voice is big now. So is that what we should do? Should we put all of our energy into creating some Alexa skill? Is that our innovation? And we find that that is often not going to be successful. So they're Um, sort of being led around by the technology. Yes. Yeah. Right. So innovation is either trialing a new technology or the company saying they want to be innovative, but not actually having the resources in place to enable innovation and the incubation of ideas. So this... The presentation is going to talk about how do you make sure that the human factor is considered, both in understanding what do humans need, right, that you can address in a new way, thus creating a new innovation, um, and also how does the organization enable their humans and their employees to innovate effectively. Yeah, so let me uh, come back to, you know, sort of two famous quotes from two famous people in history, here, mm-hmm. right? Henry Ford saying, if I... Ask customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Steve Jobs saying customers don't know what they want until we've shown them. How do you sort of modulate between that, right? That I think Chrysler a long time ago said we did research focus groups with customers and they said they didn't want a second sliding door in their minivan. And of course, the second they introduced it, it's only second sliding door, like two sliding doors now, right? Everyone wanted it. How do you modulate between that with if you ask customers, and I you know, maybe suggesting you're not asking them right in the research, but mm-hmm. if you ask them, they might give you answers that are bounded so much by what they expect to be able to get versus unmet needs that they can't even imagine could be met. Yeah. So those are great examples. Um, And so this is where when you're thinking about innovation, it is not just asking people what they want. That is important. You want to talk to people and customers, but it's understanding at a deeper level, what are their habits? What are their behaviors? What is something that they need? So maybe they need that extra door because there's some other scenario where that would be helpful. So it's understanding sort of the world that the human is interacting with and what their needs are. And based on that, what is a solution that can help support them? Yeah. Okay. So it's trying as much as possible to understand their world and their tasks and everything that they're doing independent, frankly, of how you deliver value to them today. Yeah. I mean, that's so that you can innovation. imagine new ways to innovation. Right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like what is a new way to help them that's fulfill great. this need or service? And yeah. that is the innovation in and of itself. Is anyone doing this well? 
Yeah. So is anyone doing it? Well, that's an interesting question. So there are companies who are considered the gold standard for innovation, right? A lot of people will think of Apple when we go there or Google, if we're thinking about that, who've created new technologies and interfaces and modes of interactions that are helpful for users and customers. There are also some new models that are coming out. For example, if you look at the insurance industry, there's a new company, Lemonade, who sort of broke free out of the old school insurance way where you had to read all these complicated descriptions of what the policies are going to look like and get on the phone with an agent. And they just enable it all through this really simplified digital experience. So that's another example, right? People just want insurance. They don't necessarily want all those steps. And so we do see that there are a lot of examples where it is not as effective, yeah, right? Or you talk to a company who says, yeah, we have this innovation mandate, but we can't get our ideas anywhere or no one will foster it or... This person at a higher level is saying, no, we're going to focus on voice right now. So there are a lot of companies who also need help. It's then very timely you'll be there to speak to them. Um, David, I have a random question for you about Andrew's section. Okay. Um, I think, you know, we've got the continuum, and you, you said that well, between nudges, which we think of as understanding, you know, behavioral science and the, how humans act in sort of seemingly irrational ways guided by emotions, and nudges are a positive spin on that, positive harnessing of that, dark patterns or or negative harnessing of that, perhaps. There are plenty of examples of nudges gone wrong, good intentions that lead to bad outcomes. Random question coming. Are there any examples of dark patterns gone wrong in so much as it was supposed to trick humans, but it led to a better outcome? Well, I guess I'm going to turn around the question by saying it depends what you mean by a better outcome. Because as I was hinting at earlier, sometimes it's it's relative. And um, I'm going to use your question as a springboard to point to a company that is actually doing something quite interesting and whose CEO is going to be speaking during Andrew's section. His name is Kai Wei Tang, and his company is called Light. They make a product called the Light Phone, which was designed to address the fact that people are getting addicted to their phones. So the Light Phone, the first one was the size of a credit card, and all it does is place phone calls. That's it. No apps. The Light Phone 2 just came out, actually, uh, I believe this week, and it adds just a few things. You can text You can get directions, but again, no apps. Um, So what's the intention there? The intention is to prevent people from doing all the stuff they do with apps. Is that good or is that bad? Well, it depends on your perspective. I think it's probably good, but it's a very different way of looking at things. Um, On the other hand, part of what Kai Wei Tang's company is trying to address is the fact that there are so many apps on our phones that are based on dark patterns, whose intention is to consume our attention as much as possible (laughs) to expose us to as many ads to maximize, you know, monetizing that time into ad revenue. It's a point well made that the design of the phone prevents anyone who wants to apply dark patterns from doing that to you through that phone because they can't get on that phone. That's right. So by using that phone, you're kind of preventing maybe your your instinct to just go for like, oh, just checking what's on Instagram or, or whatever to take over your time. And you make that decision by carrying that phone instead of another one. And they intend it as a phone that you can carry part of the time, not all the time. You might switch back and forth between sometimes your iPhone, sometimes that one when you're, you know, going for an evening out with some friends or going for a hike in the woods and you really just want to disconnect. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's sort of as a consumer choice play almost to say. Yeah. Sometimes you want all the apps and sometimes you right. really don't and you, you know you can't help yourself. Right. You need help right. modifying your behavior. So <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Take that so it's like I'm going to leave my iPhone at home and take my light phone instead and then, you know, swap back one for another circumstance. Yeah. I like that. And, and Ryan Hart, our former colleague, and I you know, wrote about behavioral sciences and, and using them for customer experience last year. And this was one of the insights that if the nudge was one that the 
customer could really control, like opting into, you're really on moral good standing, right? That you give them the option. So if they take that phone to go out with that night, you have enabled them to limit their distractions and they chose to take it with them, right? You're not imposing it upon them. So we've discussed the topic of the forum. We discussed some of the insights that will be led by Forrester analysts from the main stage. And you talked about John Maida, but who else can attendees expect to see there? In part one on human-centric innovation, we have Rachel Kobetz of Bank of America. She leads experience design there and is doing some great work that she's going to highlight for us. In part two, we're going to have the VP of design from Sonos, whose name is Tad Toulis, who has some great insights into how to do in-depth qualitative research for understanding the, the human side of your customers. In part three, there is no average customer. We're going to have August de los Reyes, who is the chief design officer at Vero Money, and before that was in senior leadership uh, design positions at uh, Microsoft for Xbox and also at Google. And uh, then on day two, we are going to have uh, Kai Wei Tang, who we mentioned a few minutes ago, um, and also Maria uh, Judice, who's the author of Rise of the Design Executive Officer, who has some great thoughts on how to become a change maker in your company in favor of all the benefits that design can uh, can bring to the business. And then wrapping up day two, we're going to have Hector Wheelay of Google. He's the head of design for Google Search and Assistant and has some uh, great insights into how to make tech work for customers. Sounds great. There's one that I want to highlight who's going to be in a track session who uh, I think is especially interesting. His name is John Whalen, and he's an expert on human cognition and UX, both. He's just published a book called Designing for the Way People Think a few months ago and has some really interesting insights into how some of the um, newest findings in brain science can really be useful for designing experiences that are effective for customers. Sounds great. I like the title of that book alone. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Sounds like something that will resonate well. Yes, yeah. Well, great. Looking forward to it. I'm excited about it, too. Thank you for joining us to talk through CXSF, which is coming up uh, next month, uh, if you're listening to this live in October of 2019. And if you're not, well, we had a lot of really interesting speakers, great content that David just previewed for you, and links to a lot of that content in the show notes. So check that out. And we'll talk to you all on next week's episode of the CXCast. Goodbye for now. Thanks to our colleagues Amanda Chen for recording and mixing the episode and Will Wilsey for editing and publishing. And listeners, if you have questions, feedback, comments, or suggestions for new episodes, please email us at cxcast at And remember, your customers' perceptions are your customer experience reality.